our podcast called Correlating COVID, the relationship between changes in behavior and COVID-19. Uh, I am Olivia Bannerman. I'm Nia Vainuku. And you will be listening to us discuss the different nuances and complex concepts at play here that are influencing these changes. Yes, ma'am. So we're just going to dive right into the sources and talk about how archaeology is related heavily to this contemporary time, especially um, in a pandemic with COVID-19, and also talk about, you know, how excavational efforts and other archaeological methodologies are related to um, tangible evidence and and findings during this um, pandemic time. Going right into the first article. Um, well, I think this first article is really relevant because when this when this um, pandemic started, the one thing that spiked above all else, not only in cases, was consumerism. How much people were shopping and the things that we yeah. were buying, and the fact that we had a toilet paper shortage for two weeks. But why toilet paper? Out of all things, like. Look, like this is this is to me. Like I, I get like living at home. Um, you're gonna be accommodating for those sources that you need, but the overbuying is what concerns me because I think when it comes to um, what others need and saving uh, resources for them during this pandemic time, if if you're interrupting that, then that's when it becomes a problem. And I don't, I just don't know. Like the hoarding of toilet paper is like some sort of uh, rational security it's like well I think it, a lot of it comes from panic and you're right where like hoarding is an issue and the fact that it creates a really high demand with a really low supply but then it causes the opposite issue because two months ago everyone was hoarding goods and now no one isn't because they have the supplies that they need and there's a huge backlog in certain products because no one is buying them anymore and so now that there's this huge oversupply and no demand. And so it's creating this really curious imbalance in our consumer world, um, especially around just household goods. Uh, That is not something that we would see otherwise. People, even during natural disasters, panic shopping does not happen like this. This is really, I know everyone says this, but it's an unprecedented time no one really knows what's going on or what you know the next month is going to look like and so people are just shopping for the sake of making themselves feel better and so if they saw the last guy grab six rolls of toilet paper they're going to grab six rolls of toilet paper and then this cycle is just going to continue and continue because it's almost kind of like a mob mentality like i saw this person do it so i'm gonna do it because they were Exactly. And with the uh, implementation of social media, you know, like all of these pictures with like empty shelves in the grocery stores, not stocking up, like restocking on toilet paper because everybody's buying it, you know, like I think that really set like a wave of people to go ahead and go into these stores and buy toilet paper products just because they've seen it on social media. Exactly. And it almost... You know, I, I never saw it as like a trend, but it was, it kind of felt like a trend to just it kind of, Yeah, I mean, it wasn't formally a trend, but the way that it was presented on the media and that like everybody's buying toilet paper, it kind of set off this wave. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you there. Back to archaeology. Um, the way that archaeology is able to analyze these behavioral patterns, especially in times of crisis, we really get to understand like 
how people react and what is the sort of common, the commonalities between individual behaviors during this time. And in the article, um, um, Nash, he's talking about um, the overconsumption of goods during a crisis gives people rational control in situations where social power and freelance mobility has been compromised. This relates to the overall theme of our podcast because um, we want to address these motives uh, that drive overconsumption behavior as it would explain why people react in the way for the means of survival. So I want to ask you, like, what, what do you, like, in America specifically, because we're, uh, uh, like, a highly overconsumed um, nation, you know, and with manufactured products, like, what is it about America specifically that, like, we want to buy these products because we feel secured by it? Do you well, think it's just of our environment or I mean that's something that we talked about even one week in class was like consumerism in America and how American houses have so much stuff and I kind of think you know in America we have like this mentality of you know bigger is better having more equates to having more status more wealth you know how and and so I just I sort of feel like that even plays in, it's so deeply ingrained just to in, into our culture that it, it translates it even into panic mode where we think we have to buy every Lysol wipe that we see. We have to buy all the cereal. We have to buy every can of Coke that we see because we need to have it all for ourselves. We don't know when we'll be able to get it again. And then I think that also then feeds into how individualistic America is in consumerism. So when COVID-19 was happening, we weren't coming together as a community and thinking like, oh, how can we do this? It was every man for himself. And it was every man thinking, I need to have all of this because this is what I need to feel safe and secure. Stuff in in America is such a common standard that I think when people don't have more stuff in more times of crisis, it feels like they won't be able to take care of themselves or be successful. And it makes me wonder too, you know, when Italy and when China was hit with this, I didn't hear about people flooding grocery stores or there being toilet paper shortages. Maybe there were, but that just didn't seem to hit the news the way that it did here. Yeah, um, and today, um, according to uh, Governor Inslee's uh, stay-at-home, uh, stay-healthy order um, that has uh, been has officially ended uh, today, and so um, I'm not sure what um, the the policies are with that in, in opening reopening businesses and uh, pl- public spaces, but um, like I don't know. What do you what are you gonna gonna happen like within the next couple weeks now that we have a state of Washington it's open you know well it's very interesting because even though I think the stay-at-home order is technically over he could reinstate it any day now but even though it's technically over he has this new phase system where counties can apply to reopen but that's what they have to do they have to apply so there's that so Yeah, so they, each mayor has to apply in order and have to show how they are doing the right things and they have their numbers in order to be, in order to be granted, um, basically, the allowance of being able to reopen and have restaurants be open and be able to go to the gym again. However, King County, which is the most densely populated county in Washington, 
has a unique situation right now where we're facing very large protests and riots. And King County was in the midst of reapplying for applying for phase two reopening, which would allow restaurants to reopen and malls to reopen. But now we have a 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. curfew. Curfew. So I think that in addition to COVID being very uncertain, our new civil rights movement is also going to prolong the reopening of many counties in Washington. Yeah, definitely. I think with this, you know, it's one thing to have a pandemic and, you know, try to um, comply to those policies, but now we have a whole new um, element, you know, regarding racism and police brutality. And so that's prolonging our, uh, you know, our uh, efforts to uh, reopen and uh, um, try to go back to normal, but it's, well, it's a lot. I think the reality is, is that there is no normal. Like, I don't think we will go back to normal in many ways because normal has what got us here. You know, normal is what created COVID-19. Normal is what has created these riots that are happening in Seattle. So I don't, I don't think that normal, I think what we consider to be normal is over. We like it or not. Like it's, I think it's over and it's going to change and we will have a new normal. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I, I have, I have hope at the end of the day. Um, but you know, slowly but surely, I, I think you know, we're just approaching uh, an era of reformation, um, and so that's going to come with a lot of reconstruction in our society. Um, going into the second article, um, is talking about. It's called. Coronavirus discarded disposable gloves on the streets. Uh, talks about a um, an author. The author is is unknown, but um, he came across. Um, he was running and jogging in his neighborhood, and he came across um, an excess of 300 discarded gloves and masks along a, 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 like around the radius of his own uh, neighborhood. And so uh, this is just a, a reflection of. Um, you know, discarded, it, it's very much related to um, uh, like our garbology um, study that we've been going on, that we've been uh, going over in this class and um, like how these discarded items like reflect uh, behavioral patterns and like our, um, it, it, it tells us a lot about uh, how we're reacting and like, you know, with the, um, with precautionary measures uh, enacted by the CDC. And so we are seeing a lot of gloves and a lot of disposable medical masks. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure you've seen them around your own neighborhood as well, so. I went to Target the other day and I found three in the parking lot that had been like repeatedly run over by cars and stuff. You know, they had just been left out in the street. Um, and which is kind of unfortunate because then, you know, we are, facing a shortage of masks and yet, you know, for essential workers and yet, you know, but people are buying them somehow, hoarding them and then throwing them away as if they aren't valuable commodities, which they now are. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I've even seen him in my own home. I don't, 
I don't have like a hospital that's like within a five mile radius to my home. And so to see uh, these medical masks and these discarded gloves in my neighborhood, it's, it's really, um, it's really foreign to see, but like in this pandemic, in this pandemic time, it really, it makes sense. But at the same time, like, um, I know from what I've seen on social media, there are a lot of doctors who, uh, you know, educate the public on like, on how to properly use PPE. And um, they, they also uh, fight for the, for the need of more uh, medical supplies. And, you know, I firmly believe that those masks need, need to go to um, those essential workers in healthcare because they are receiving a shortage. We saw that with individuals in their garbology, but another thing that I think is interesting is how the view of masks have changed and PPEs changed because before we didn't see people wearing masks a lot. It was very infrequent and, you know, usually it was seen, at least on campus, was usually Asian students. And, you know, whether it was like a trendy accessory or if it, they were worried about getting sick, like it was just, it was not commonly seen with say white students on campus. And I remember I even wrote a paper um, in Professor Nina's class actually about how racism is more prevalent because more and more people are wearing masks because of COVID-19 and they're blaming it and attributing it to it being a Chinese virus. And you know, people are being more racist towards Asian people who are wearing masks, even if they wore them before. And I actually had a friend- That is not new. That is not new. And, and um, the, during the, um, in the early 1900s, 1918 to 1920, um, uh, the, in the Spanish flu, they, they categorized that as a Spanish disease. So they were receiving a lot of scrutiny and a lot of racism for well, what happened back then. Like, I think that's human nature. They just want to play the blame game. Yeah, play the blame game. Exactly. Yeah. And now everyone white people, everyone, are fighting over masks to get them. When, you know, just two months ago, we were super, super against anyone who was wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. And now, but it, but it's very interesting. So there, like in Seattle, I have noticed, I don't, I'm not living there right now, but when I go back, I notice everyone's wearing masks. But right now, mm-hmm. but right now. Earlier, and, and literally everybody was wearing a mask. I, I almost thought that, um, there was a policy I didn't know about <laughs> when walking into the store. I was like, um, I probably should have bring my mask from home. I, I, I forgot it, but then um, they didn't kick me out of the store. I kind of thought they would <laughs> since I wasn't wearing a mask, but But yeah. so everyone wears masks in Seattle, but I live about an hour south of Seattle in like farm area. It's very, very rural. There's only farms here, a lot of Trump supporters and no one wears masks. And it's made me realize that to wear a mask is kind of a political statement because there are people who think masks are dumb and that you don't need one and COVID-19 is a host and to wear a mask is to be ridiculous. And then there are people who say we need to wear a mask to protect ourselves, to protect others. Like this is what the government wants us to do. And And so now wearing a mask as well. Uh, like some, like back in Vancouver, I live about three hours south. So when I was there, nobody wore masks and nobody even thought to wear any. And uh, and and also like the cases of coronavirus were 
were very low. And now that I'm here back in Seattle, everybody's wearing masks and everybody thinks that is necessary and mandatory and uh, following CDC guidelines. And so it's very different from every region in, in, uh, in um, Washington. And I, I think that's um, just based off of uh, the cases of coronavirus. If it's, if it's low, people are gonna, you know, not take it, not, not take it as serious. Well, I mean, I think it's that, but I also think it's more political than that. Like, I think more left-leaning individuals are more willing to adhere to government recommendations maybe than right-leaning individuals just because of how their party thinks of big government. You know, like you've heard Republicans use that term, like we don't need big government. Um, and so like, at least where I live, I have been criticized by bystanders for wearing a mask, people telling me that I look silly, that I don't need one, that it's ridiculous. And I'm like, you know what? This is my choice. I can make this for myself, but they don't see it as me making a choice for myself. They see it as like a political statement. They see it as something to comment on. And is that just in the region that you live in? That's what's what's going on in your area yeah they yeah i live i live in farmland i live in roy washington it's about an hour and 15 minutes south and it's um like my neighbors have trump 2020 signs in their front yard and there there are confederate flags painted on garage doors here like it's a very polarized area just learning about um you know how like in archaeology and contemporary archaeology, how like um, tangible evidence can tell us about people's behaviors and epistemologies on um, certain topics. Like, I think with this pandemic, like, do you think, you know, how um, individuals like their point of view on this, on this virus and this pandemic, like, um, what do you, is, is that like, um, based on their social environment? Or could that be just from their upbringing and like different social status and like their acts of privilege, like, you know, with what their statements were towards you? Honestly, probably all of the above. I think it has to do with their political outlooks. I think it has to do with how they were brought up. I think it has to do with probably they, with how they view the government in general. Because I know a lot of people who voted for Trump who think that he has been brainwashed because he's telling us to wear masks, um, even though they voted for him. So it isn't just like who they support in office. I think it's how they were brought up to view government in general. Move on to um, article number four, um, the archeology, the archeological study of epidemic and infectious disease. Uh, Peter Mitchell writes about how infectious diseases are part of the human experience. So can you can you elaborate more on that? Like, what does that mean? And how 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 do humans uh, view disease in um, according to this article? Well, I mean, this article talks about a lot of different things. It starts way, way, way back when when diseases were viewed as bad spirits and how uh, like disease was a spiritual affliction rather than a physical one. Um, and then it talks about how, you know, the pandemic, like the flu pandemic, forever changed um, the course of America. It talks about the Black Plague, 
um, and just how those forever change history and how archaeology creates this advantage when studying infectious disease to see how individuals took action to protect themselves and to cope with the discomfort and the fear that they were facing but then to also see how archaeology allowed people to collect this insane amount of information about not only just the individual impact of it, but how it impacted all demographics and like the, the social consequences of the impact. Um, and so that's really similar to what we're seeing today because, you know, we have people who are suffering individually, whether it be that they get sick, whether it be that they get job, they lost their job, but then you have to see that Oh, there's 26 million people who lost their job. That is one of the highest unemployment rates we've seen since the Great Depression. And that is an individual. That's a societal thing. That is a huge impact that the, this virus has caused the government to shut down in such a way that it has limited right. people's individual ability to cope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, you know, uh, 26 million people are unemployed. Like, that is a significant toll to people who need resources at this time um you know for marginalized and silenced communities they don't they don't have much um they don't have much agency you know to uh, uh accommodate and and uh, get them through this hard time so it's, it's very it, it's hard <laughs> Well, then there's this other flip side to it with like, there's people who can't get unemployment because of opportunists. There are people who are stealing individuals' identities and claiming unemployment benefits as fraud. Um, so like just recently, about $300 million worth of unemployment benefits were recovered because they were fraudulent. And that made it so that $300 million worth of benefits couldn't get out to people who needed it. And so I think in the future, we're going to see this really, this black patch in the economy where people are just kind of like in 2008, where they're suffering, they're trying to dig themselves out of this hole where the government doesn't really have mechanisms in play for them to do that. Because mm -hmm. they didn't have mechanisms in play, you know, like to, to prevent things, you know, we didn't have mechanisms in place to prevent this pandemic from growing. We just, just had to deal with it as it's growing. You know, we haven't had mechanisms in play to make sure that if you apply for benefits, you get them on time. And so like this impact of this virus is gonna provide information on our government on hopefully how to react in the future. And archeologists can then infer you know, in the future, what went wrong, what should have been done, what was done, what wasn't done, and what can be done next time. I think that we should definitely move on to talking about the archaeology of death. Oh, yes. Um, it's so relevant. We have, it's so relevant. And um, I'm going to go ahead and talk about um, article nine in our bibliography um utter disasters um oh no 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 i'm sorry it's not article nine it's article 10 um coronavirus and coping with death um so this article talks about a uh ph it talks about a true story about a phd student in archaeology finding a dead body hours before her graduation ceremony and um this um encounter 
made her reflect on death during this current pandemic time and um, how people are responding to fatality rates caused by COVID-19. Um, and I said this is this this is very important in in this pandemic time to talk about archaeology of the dead because um, you know with with the with the rates that are going up and what like what we're doing with um, those bodies you know with like mass graves like we understand like you know what what the precautionary measures have to be with um, taking care of the dead and so like what do you feel about that? Death is an integral part of life. And I think in America, it's probably not as widely regarded as it is in some cultures, but it is a thing where every culture has a unique death process. You die and then what happens to your body afterwards helps you or helps the living cope with death. And I think that COVID has really interrupted this cycle because of the sheer quantity of deaths that are happening that rather than everyone being able to be cremated and have their ashes spread or have an individualized burial at their family grave, they have to be buried at a mass grave and or morgues aren't taking um, bodies right now because fear of cross cont of contamination and further spreading COVID. Yeah. And so people aren't, people aren't, getting to grieve the way that they would grieve and grief is a it's a complex dark thing and i don't there's a you know i haven't experienced a lot of loss in my life um like when i lost my grandparents i was very young i wasn't fully aware of what death was at the time but i know yeah. that the process of grieving is incredibly important to the process of coping with death and that is being stripped away from people, not only as an individual, but as a part of a larger culture. And so like one of the articles that we've read here talks about how in the Amazon in Brazil, there are huge mass graves being filled where people only have five minutes to say goodbye to their loved ones before they're put in the ground with hundreds of other people. And that is the process that they have simply because that's the only option that they have right now. They don't have any other options. There are no caskets. There are no, there's nothing. They just put their body in the ground. And I feel like that really stunts one's ability to grieve because they're not only grieving the loss of their loved one, they're now grieving the loss of this experience. They're grieving the loss of closure. And I think that's something that's really important and not in just American society, but in all societies. Like, I mean, if you look at Brazil, like they're not getting the closure that they need to mourn their families. What do you think yeah. about it? Um, I can actually give you a testimony on it um, because two weeks ago, my cousin passed away um, suddenly. And with this COVID-19, you know, social isolation, the funeral that we had for her was very isolating. Um, we all had like, she has a big family and you know, in our culture specifically, like death is very much taken seriously. And we, we hold so much um, grief and we want to give everything, you know, to, to celebrate the life of our loved ones. Um, and so the fact that we weren't able to do that and I even had to stay six feet away from my mom, my cousins, my aunties, my uncles, 
you know, just to, just to bury her. And it was a very, it was a very weird, uncomfortable foreign experience, you know, that I'm not typically, you know, I, w- I wasn't happy about that. I, w- I wasn't happy about, you know, our, our, our social distancing um, at all. And so like, you know, not being able to hug and, you know, express our grief, it was very difficult. And it's something that I often look back and uh, feel, you know, very sensitive about, but um, nonetheless, it, it was, it was, we, we did the best that we could with what we had, so. Yeah, and I think that's like, gonna show I think perseverance is something that will come up a lot in in the days to come like people you know culture is so incredibly important to people traditions are so incredibly important to people especially when it comes around to death you know some people really mourn deeply when it comes to death and then other people treat death as like a celebration of life and they try and make it happy but right now they don't have any kind of control over the outcome of the like death process and the ceremony that goes into it because right now the government is handing all of that um and so right now it just sort of seems like i think people will persevere and they will adapt and they will do what they can to you know maintain their culture in the scenarios and the parameters that we have right now and so like in the article that talks about the amazon people are commenting on how you know like what's happening right now has happened again you know the the one of the other articles mentioned a pandemic that was in zimbabwe and how they found mass graves that showed the dead then when that was not congruent with other kinds of graves that they found that were dated older than the ones from that pandemic. And people are gonna see the same thing happening right now. These mass graves are going to be, I mean, I don't think they'll be found. I'm sure they will be marked forever. They're going to see these graves and then they're going to see the graves that, you know, that we have in normal cemeteries and they're going to know like something happened here. This is very different. This is not normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the excavations of, you know, bodily remains, you know, that, that are in the archeology span of death, you know, um, I remember, um, in class, I think it was week Five, we, t- we talked about archaeology of the dead and like how, um, you know, people um, um, like uh, in this one article, uh, it was talking about um, the Spanish-American War and how um, archaeological, uh, archaeology, archaeologists, I'm sorry, I'm messing up my words, and how archaeologists um, uh, were looking for remains of um, victims that disappeared and uh, were killed during the Spanish-American War to sort of, um, you know, uncover uh, certain narratives that weren't spoken about or weren't released um, during that that time in, in history. And so I feel like comparing that to COVID-19, I feel like archaeology of the dead in, in sort of a forensic um, approach will help us understand what people's narratives were. And I'm I'm hoping that it will give families closure 
you know, from what they couldn't um, bring to their loved one during their passing. Yeah. And it's like not only what they can do for their loved one, but also what they can do for themselves to help them move on. Yeah, exactly. And so um, Archaeology of the Dead, it, it's a beautiful thing. I think it, I think it unites families and, um, you know, helps them remember their loved one in a way that's more sentimental and um, gives them hope for the future. Yeah. Well, to come full circle, I think one thing that we have kind of touched on um, in every article that has related to either modern day events or historical ones that um, mass infection, pandemics, COVID-19 has inherently changed everything that we know and consider normal. Mm -hmm. And that... And that is going to create a mark in history and culture that I think will be able to be seen for generations. Yes, and um, in the podcast, we've covered some really important content in the field of archaeology. Um, for example, uh, archaeology of the human, archaeology of the dead, archaeology of um, consumption and, and consumerism, and so. Um, those the, these those these specific contexts can definitely tell us um, what our behavioral patterns are and you know what we have been doing um, historically to combat the spread of COVID nineteen um, and other viruses and so um, to analyze that in in, in that approach is in the archaeolo archaeological approach is very important. I agree. I think you did that very well. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening to Correlating COVID. It's been Olivia Bannerman and Mia Vainuku. Thank tune you. In next, tune in next time for our next talk. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs>